Well, I like the weather. Does anybody else like the weather? I love it. We're, we're English, so we don't really have kind of real weather. It's a kind of a bland sameness. It's a bit like our food, as somebody told me. It's kind of bland and same. doesn't really have a lot of flavor to it. And so we have the kind of gray skies for much of the time. And um, when you come to a place that has, like, weather, it's awesome. So Sally let the dog out this morning and then came back upstairs to the bedroom and said, Breakfast will be a bit later today because I'm going out in the snow. <laughs> and so that was what Sally did this morning. She just went and frolicked in the snow with Barney and um, then came back and we had breakfast. And of course, it gives me, you know, weather like this gives me opportunity to show my full support for the Yellowstone Ranch uh, because I get to wear lots of layers like all the guys on the, on the show there. Some of you know what I'm talking about. I can see some of you brightening up there and saying, yeah, that's me too, brother. I'm not allowed to wear my hat at breakfast, apparently. I would do. I'd normally wear my cowboy hat, you know, whilst I'm watching during the season of uh, Yellowstone, but uh, I'm not allowed to, apparently, over breakfast. So this, um, this morning, we're going to dive deep into a tremendously important subject, and it is the subject of how accurate... How accurate is your understanding of the gospel? How accurate is it? Do you have an accurate understanding or a less than accurate understanding? Do you have a complete understanding or an incomplete understanding? Because we have in the passage so helpfully introduced to us and taught to us by Aaron and the family ministry team, we have today one of those moments in the scriptures when you get the opportunity to reflect afresh on how far you have progressed in your faith. Reflect afresh on how closely your life aligns with the characters and with the exemplars of scripture. So I'm going to read the passage to us. And um, it's actually a long passage, so I'm going to stop at the end of uh, chapter 18 and then see if the Lord allows us to complete the passage as I prepared it this week, uh, which will go into chapter 19 as well. But we're going to read from chapter 18 of the Acts of the Apostles, verse 23, which begins like this. After spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there and traveled from place to place through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained the way of God more accurately. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. On arriving, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed, for he vigorously refuted the Jews in public debate, proving from the scriptures 
that Jesus was the Christ. So we have this fascinating character, a character who appears here in the text of the Acts of the Apostles and appears again in the correspondence that Paul will have with the church in Corinth. There are clearly people, by the time that Paul is writing his letters to the Corinthian church, who have begun to get into different kinds of theological and spiritual camps. Probably, they identified themselves with teachers and preachers who had had a profound effect upon them. John Piper, no, no, not John Piper, Um, (laughs) Apollos, Cephas, who of course is Peter, and Paul himself. There in Corinth, there were groups of people who kind of congregated around the gifts and the teaching ministry of different visiting preachers. And this is the way that Paul puts it. He says, one planted, another watered, but only God gave the growth. He said, I planted the church in Corinth. It is my church. It's the church that is identified with me because I am the father of this church. And he's very clear about that fathering role that he's had in this congregation's life. And Apollos has come and has watered what it is that I planted. And it's God who's given the growth. Paul never speaks badly of Apollos. He never suggests that he's kind of off base in his theology. He affirms what it is that Apollos has done. And here, one of Paul's team members, Luke, writes the background, some of the background story, the background narrative of Apollos. And again, he is given great prominence in the text and is only encouraged and supported and affirmed in his life and ministry. Apollos comes from one of the largest Jewish communities in the world at the time. We know from the history and the historiographical research that's been done on the church of Africa that the church of Africa in the early centuries of the life of the Christian church, Africa looked to Alexandria as their home as the place where the spiritual mothers and fathers were raised up. And principally, their patriarch, the gospel writer Mark, who lost his life to martyrdom there in Alexandria. And in Alexandria, there had been for several centuries a very large, prosperous, and well-known community, a community of scholarly Jewish leaders and teachers who had gathered a huge following and a huge residential quarter to this particular city, the city that, of course, is named for Alexander the Great. He, of course, has his mausoleum there at this time, and the mausoleum, though amazing and splendid, was not one of the seven wonders of the world. That was the lighthouse in Alexandria. But Alexandria was known for several things. It was known for the mausoleum of Alexander, who, of course, was resplendent in his gold armor 
in the glass-sided coffin that allowed you still to see his embalmed and preserved body in this magnificent building that was erected around uh, his coffin sarcophagus, the mausoleum of Alexander. And then, of course, the great lighthouse that guided the ships past the the shoals and the sandbanks around the Nile Delta. And then, of course, perhaps something even more significant than those two things, the greatest library in the world, which sadly is lost to us through fire, but was the repository of repositories, the greatest of all repositories of knowledge in the known world at the time. And so if you were raised up in this environment, you were raised up in a privileged and elite learning environment. And if you happen to excel in this environment and you were taught all of the skills and talents of the rhetoricians, the public speakers who who were able to convey their information with, with passion and intensity, as well as with accuracy and depth of knowledge, then you would have a welcome in any Jewish community in the world and probably in any marketplace in the world, any agora in the world where people would gather to listen to the great speakers, the great, the great thinkers of the day as they traveled from place to place, plying their trade and earning their income. And here comes Apollos. Ephesus is right up there with the top five cities in the world, Rome, Corinth, Alexandria, Antioch, Ephesus. They all vied in different ways for preeminence. Ephesus was known as a center of pagan spirituality. It had the largest temple in the world, the Temple of Diana, where the face of the goddess was supposed to be seen in a meteorite that had fallen to earth. King Croesus, the Lydian king, had provided the funds to build this enormous building, the platform of which is still uh, visible to this day, and I've been there and been privileged to look around it. Ephesus was most definitely on the speaking circuit for the best speakers of the day. And here comes Apollos. He comes from the greatest place of learning. He comes from the grandest of Jewish communities. And he, he has preeminent gifts as a speaker, as a rhetorician, as a, as a thinker, and as a teacher. And there, no doubt in the Agora, And then in the synagogue, Apollos does a masterful, swashbuckling job of demonstrating that Jesus is the Messiah and is the long-awaited leader of the people of Israel. He has been instructed well. The passage here tells us that not only does he have a detailed knowledge, but he is able to teach about Jesus 
accurately. But there's something missing. Now, is he a believer? It would appear so. He's been instructed about Jesus accurately. But he only knows a baptism of repentance. John's baptism. Now, of course, Apollos, like the rest of us, would have certain things available to him from the teaching of John the Baptist. It's thought today that the work of John the Baptist was much more significant than perhaps you or I would perhaps be expecting to believe in the 21st century. In the first couple of centuries, certainly during the time that there were large Jewish communities around the Mediterranean basin, the ministry of John the Baptist had become much more extensive than anyone up until very recently had ever imagined. But certainly from recent historical research, it would suggest that John's work extended way beyond the bounds of Israel. But John said this, and those who would follow him would know what it was that he was speaking of. Luke chapter 3, verse 16. John, who is being asked whether he is the Christ, answers, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Of course, on the day of Pentecost, we see the manifestation of the Holy Spirit as he comes to the gathered company of Jesus' followers. There is a shaking, and then there is fire resting on the heads of each of those followers, indicating that where once the tabernacle of God, the temple of the living God, was resident in one location, in a fixed place, when the fire of God came down upon the temple, as it did upon the, the mobile temple of the tabernacle in the wilderness, in the same way that the fire came down, that would be seen as cloud by day and fire by night, as the fire came down indicating God's presence among his people, so on the day of Pentecost, each believer is identified as the temple of the living God. And Jesus, baptizing with fire, reveals that each person that follows him is the location where God is pleased to live. The Holy Spirit comes and fills those first believers and they have the indication not only of being filled, baptized with the Holy Spirit, but now baptized with fire because God indicates his presence in and upon them. Apollos would know that. But there are two words for knowing in the New Testament. One is gnosis. It has a silent G 
Gnosis is one way that you might pronounce it, but the, the word is gnosis, and it means knowledge. And um, if it's accurate knowledge, then the Greek word for accurate would be applied to that, and it would be accurate knowledge, which is exactly the word that's in this text here. Knowledge. But then there is the knowledge that comes from experiencing the reality that a person has spoken of. And that is the word epinosis. Epinosis. Now Paul knew that people would struggle and would often be conflicted by this, by this differentiation between knowledge and experiential knowledge, between gnosis and epinosis. And he makes it clear which is the one that he wants his followers, he wants his young believers, he wants the churches for which he's responsible for to experience and to understand. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 17, I keep asking, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit, capital S, of wisdom and re revelation, so that you may know him better. Have a guess which word is used for know there. Epinosis. So that you might have the experience of knowing him. So that we might go from the left brain to complete the journey into the right brain. So that you go beyond the knowledge of words and information into the knowledge of the person experienced at every level of your being. So that every part of you, your feelings, your emotions, your understanding, your knowledge are all brought together in an understanding of the encounter of a person rather than the encounter of a series of facts. Apollos had most certainly done a great job in demonstrating all of the facts about Jesus. But he didn't understand what had already happened within him and most certainly did not understand how to share it with others. Priscilla and Aquila, we're told in the text, listen to him in the synagogue, a bit like you're so kindly listening to me today. And there we see that Priscilla, and it's interesting that that's the order in which the, the names of these two illustrious missionaries are offered, Priscilla and Aquila. Maybe it's it's indicating, and certainly this would be a majority of scholars today would suggest that maybe Priscilla was the one who was the more adept at teaching, the one who was more gifted and, and endowed with the spiritual gift of teaching. And so Priscilla and Aquila, the woman and the man, shared with Apollos what it was that he needed to understand. And the word here in my initial translation, the NIV, 
1984, said, the way of God. Now, the way of God is something that has a long provenance in the scriptures. The way of the Lord, of course, is the way in which God discipled his people all through the Old Testament histories. And the way of the Lord becomes the way of Jesus. And the way of Jesus, the way of God in the New Testament is so profoundly important to the writer Luke that the name, the first name that he gives to the church of Jesus Christ is the way. Apollos knows some of the way, but he can't get you to the destination. He needs someone to share with him the way of God in mine more adequately. Unfortunately, that's a poor translation of the word. The word is literally more accurately. Because you see, what Luke is doing here is playing on the word accurate. Here in verse 25, it says, He spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately. Accurately. He could hit the target. He just couldn't hit the bullseye. Priscilla and Aquila adjusted the sights and enabled him to hit the bullseye. Apollos, it's not about how much you know of the facts of Jesus. It's how well you know the person of Jesus. Apollos, it's not simply a matter of marshalling all of the information so that you have the ability to convince other people of the rightness of your arguments. It's a matter of whether you know God who dwells within you and is guiding you in the way. That's the key. Do you know the God of the way or do you just know the way of God? Do you know the God of the way? What happens, Apollos, when you come across territory that you find unfamiliar? What happens, Apollos, when your information runs out because you have a finite brain? Of course, you're going to encounter situations that are not covered by your copious knowledge. What happens then? What happens when your knowledge of the way runs out? Well, fortunately, you can know the God of the way. And he can continue to guide you. In circumstances that you've never encountered before, in, in situations that you've, that you've never thought of before, and, and, and things that you've not had yet time to reflect upon, and yet you know God. You can be in step with the Spirit. You can walk with the Spirit. And He can guide you. You can know the inner impulse 
of his presence, and you can come to know him better every day. But Apollos, you don't understand that yet. And so we're going to help you have a more accurate understanding. I said I love the weather. Don't you love the weather? And I smile. And, you know, the, the, I have to watch pride from time to time. I know pride never kind of crops up in your heart, but every so often I have pride in my heart. Just now and again. And um, one of the things that gives me pride is that I've got a Ford F-150. <laughs> and it's just slightly raised and it's kind of cool. And it's got a good sound system. And I watch these people clearing their drive so that their little cars can get out. And I feel so sorry for them. Those poor little cars. They can't go anywhere. But I can get her done. I can go anywhere I want. I may have a hill on my driveway but I can get her done. <laughs> and you know how I get it done? By turning a little button. It's so cool. It makes my heart swell. I'm there on the blacktop with everyone else using rear wheel drive, maybe the occasional front wheel drive car. Just driving along the blacktop. And then I come to my driveway that has four feet of snow, great mounds of snow. And I see my neighbor with this tiny little snow blower clearing the path. And I just turn the dial and drive up my driveway. And it's amazing. It makes me feel ah, as though I need to pray for all of these poor people in the world. So, here's the thing. What would it be like for me to have an F-150 with a button that has auto 4x4, high 4x4, four four, low ratio 4x4, four four. I could just turn the button. What would it be like for me to drive that vehicle without the knowledge of that dial? What would that be like? What would it be like if I got a pastoral call in the middle of the night and I'd say, I'm sorry, my car can't get there. What would happen if somebody's having their baby delivered at a, at a hospital nearby and they, they need prayer and pastoral assistance and, and I don't know about the dial on my dashboard? What, what happens then? What happens if 
Gary and Marilyn are snowed in. And they're way up the top of their drive there. And they've left their skis someplace so they can't ever get out. And they need somebody to come and rescue them. You see, I think so many Christians are like Apollos. And they live below the level of God's equipping and empowering. You've got all the equipment. You just don't know how to use it. You've got all that is needed. All things in Christ Jesus. You have everything you need for life and godliness. And yet, we find ourselves incapacitated by all kinds of circumstances and situations. And why is that? Because we have an accurate knowledge, but we need a more accurate knowledge. Because we have a knowledge, of course, of what Jesus has achieved in his incarnation, in his death and resurrection. We have an accurate knowledge of these things. We know who Jesus is and we understand what it is that he's come to perform. But when people say, I heard the Lord say this to me, we think, what do you mean? And we start asking questions like, do you hear an audible voice or, I mean, what is it? It's writing in the sky. And, and then they say, well, no, it's not usually an audible voice. It's not usually writing in the sky. It's just a kind of sense of how God's guiding and leading me. And as I read the scriptures more, I, I kind of get a, a, a clearer sense of how it is that he's saying because the scriptures are like a, are like a, 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 a way of me understanding the, the, the conversation of heaven that's going on in my heart all the time. It's like the phrase book of heaven. Oh, really? And how does that work again? Well, it works by you knowing him. Rather than knowing about him. Verse 1 of chapter 19. While Apollos was at Corinth, Corinth is the main city of Achaia, the region that he wanted to go to, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived in Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? You see, Paul always hung out with Priscilla and Aquila. He usually lived in their home. So when he came to Ephesus, the first place he would go to is the home of Priscilla and Aquila. And he'd say, hey, you know, how's things going? Is everything going well in the synagogue? Sure, we had this great preacher in Apollos. And uh, then they tell him the story, of course. And Paul's thinking, I wonder, I wonder what that's done here. And so he meets some disciples of Jesus. And he asks them the question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no, we have never even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Paul asked, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, Jesus, who would baptize with spirit and with fire. 
On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Paul placed his hands on them. The Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. They spoke in tongues, and they prophesied. Now, don't get hung up. Stay with me here for a minute. Because I know all of the things that are going through your mind. Ooh, you're thinking, ooh, wait a minute. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, and that meant that they had a deeper connection to God in prayer. Because the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. When we're unable to pray, He prays on our behalf from our spirit to the very heart of God with groans too deep for words. That's how Paul puts it in Romans 8. And they're able to speak with greater boldness to the world around them. They're able to prophesy. They're able to speak God's word in a way that is direct and compelling. A way that convinces and convicts. And so they're able not only to know God better, but they're able to introduce others to a deeper knowledge of God. Surely, everyone wants that. The theme of the Holy Spirit in Luke and Acts is enormously important. Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist. And what is the first thing that happens as he comes up out of the waters in the river Jordan? The first thing that happens, according to the gospel writers and Luke himself, the sky is torn in two and the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus. And then God speaks. Why in that order? Because Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, who is a human being, who is a man, needs the connection to the heart of God so that he can understand the Word of God. And what does the Word say? This is my Son whom I love. With Him I'm very pleased. But because he had the Spirit descend upon him first, he knew what that meant. It wasn't a series of words. It wasn't facts that were easily shared on a piece of paper. It was something that was real to him. It was epinosis, not gnosis. And the same Holy Spirit then takes him into the desert And there he's tested by the devil. And he comes out full of the power of the Spirit. He goes in full of the Spirit. He comes out full of the power of the Spirit. And then Jesus goes to his hometown in Nazareth. And he says, look guys, I've got all of the arguments to settle the issue about who the Messiah is. I've got all the information you need. So if you'll just listen carefully to me, I'll explain who I am who you are, and maybe, maybe we'll do a 10-week course. If you can turn up after each synagogue service each week, I'll carefully go through 
what it is that you need to know. That's exactly what Jesus said at the beginning of his ministry, isn't it? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. And the only decision that you've got to make right now is whether you're poor enough to listen. Of course, Jesus had all of the knowledge. He needed the power. And so the first thing that comes out of his mouth is the declaration, the testimony, the witness of what it is that he needs to demonstrate the reality of who he is and what it is that he's come to establish. The kingdom of God is established not in words, says Paul to the Corinthians, but in the Holy Spirit and in power. When Jesus came down from the mountain having prayed all night, and the crowds were gathering around him. Jesus wasn't giving them three steps to heaven. Power was coming from him and healing them all. When the woman reached out and touched the hem of his garment, he didn't stop and say, who is it that I need to give all of the correct information about so that they can know how to be my disciple? He said this, I felt power coming from me. When Jesus has been raised from the dead and he's preparing his disciples, he says, wait in Jerusalem. There's a little lecture series that I need you to understand so that you can become missionaries to the world. Wait. In Jerusalem for the promise of the Father the power of the Spirit and when he comes you will be empowered to be my witnesses empowered to be my witnesses in Jerusalem in Judea in Samaria to the ends of the earth and of course as the Holy Spirit continues his mission through the disciples. He reveals the significance of his position and place. When the Samaritans, the first group of people who would be in a prejudicial relationship with the Jewish believers, where racism and, and, and prejudice would be, would be there as a, as a nascent undergirding of their relationships, what happens? The most prejudiced, John, who says, shall I call fire down on these sinners? John and Peter, they go to the Samaritans and they pray what? That they get a clear head about who they are? No, they pray for them to be filled with the Spirit. And when the first Gentile believer there with Peter is listening to the gospel... 
Peter doesn't even complete his presentation before the Spirit descends upon Cornelius and his household and they're filled with the Spirit, speak in tongues and are equipped to follow Jesus. How come? How come Peter didn't come to Cornelius and say, listen brother, you're a Gentile, I'm a Jew, you don't know anything about the Bible. We need to do a year's course and at the end of it, you'll probably know something that you, you know, can kind of put together in your life. Now, of course, that's important. Nobody would suggest otherwise. Certainly not me, at any rate. But why, why, why do we think that information about the person is more important than knowing the person? The only explanation I can give is that it's a lot safer that way. I mean, I'm not a particularly dangerous person, but you could find an awful lot about me on Wikipedia and social media and stuff like that. It's not me. It's not me. It's just information about me. The same is true of you. And the same is true of the living triune God. He wants you to know him better. You have a dial on the dashboard that many don't even know exists. And it would change everything. It would change the way you approach fear. It would change the way that you approach anxiety. It would change the way that you approach the raising of your children. These are the spiritual children of Apollos. And they don't know anything about the Holy Spirit. They don't know anything about him. They don't even know that there is a Holy Spirit. Your children can only know what you know. And what you share with them. My kids... Most breakfasts, when we had people to stay, would share some kind of prophetic word with the people who came as our guests. It freaked them out completely. <laughs> Little Sam was there, 10 year old. I had a picture last night, just as I was going to sleep about you. And I think this is what Jesus is saying to you. And people would be at the breakfast table kind of repenting. Oh God, <laughs> Surely, surely, we want our children, we want our disciples, we want the people that we're raising up in the faith to know him. I think Apollos was a Christian. I think these other guys were Christians. There's no other way that you normally describe a follower of Jesus other than as a disciple, and they're described as disciples. They just didn't have the most accurate understanding. And the most accurate understanding is simply this. Knowing the person is the first and most important truth. After that, learn as much as you can 
but know the person. 